Christian Bible Church again, and happy Easter to you. And that whole video encapsulates the hope that we have. Uh, the talk of what Jesus did to defeat darkness and bring light. And honestly, the idea of something going from dark to light is not something that's uncommon to us. I mean, it's as simple as one of the light switches in the room that you're in right now. And it happens like this. Things can go from dark to light instantaneously. But the reality is if you've been on earth long enough, you've had a chance to see the opposite to be true as, just as much as well. It's, you can go from light to dark in a matter of moments, in a matter of seconds. In fact, most of us have experienced something light going to dark very fast. Our world has experienced that recently. I mean, can you imagine a time, can you ever imagine a time where we would see world cities vacant, looking far more like uh, some type of dystopian movie than reality? Did you ever envision a time where learning would be totally altered from the norm? Did you ever think you'd have a time where leaving your house and what precautions you would have to take if you did so would have to come into question? A world where everyone would be familiar with the term social distancing. Did you ever think that you'd celebrate family functions like this? This is NBC's Lizzie Glasgow celebrating her birthday with her family who are safely on the deck recording her opener presence so that she could protect them because she's a flight attendant. She doesn't want them to get infected. Did you ever think that CNN would be reporting on check nudists being told to wear face masks by the police? Or a world where this guy would be the smartest person in the room? I got to be honest, I didn't see that coming. Uh, that, that's not something that I would have expected. In fact, a lot of things that have taken place in the past month, month and a half, have altered our expectation and has gone into a change radically. This was probably a year that started out for you fairly bright. There was a lot of hope. Every new year we have that. For you, this could have been the year where you were looking forward to graduate and you were so looking forward to walking that or, or when you were going to get your license this spring. This could have been the year for you where you were looking forward to being married or promoted or a year where you were finally going to get closer to retirement. You had positioned yourself financially all these years. This was going to be the year. Or this was going to be the year where you were finally going to get your finances in check and, or you're finally going to get promoted and your job was kind of like moving in a direction where it was finally having momentum. This may have been the year so bright that you were going to actually get your addictions in check or your mental health. It was going to finally take a corner to the positive. And then all of a sudden, in a second, things went from light to dark. In a second, all of a sudden, a new reality came into our world when a plague hit. And you may have been this year for radically different reasons, seeing the instantaneous nature of how things can go from light to dark. You may have been like one of our NBC families uh, who was just feeling out of place, went into a, for a routine checkup or went in to just get some questions answered from a doctor. Nothing radically or crazy out of the norm, just, just something off, only to get a call back that literally took your breath away. Some people within our church have experienced so many of these light points that have led to dark points and light points that have led to dark points that it's totally jaded you. Maybe you're like that, where honestly you don't even have hope anymore because you've been disappointed by the reality of these down, dark points. The point that you feel like darkness is just overwhelmingly covering everything about your life. High points don't even look bright anymore. Now, for Christians, this is where Easter speaks into that reality. 
for Christians, we understand that the source of the darkness is, is a, it all stems from a disconnect. There's a disconnection between us and our creator. The Bible it calls this disconnection sin. It's a rebellion. And, and all of our disconnections, everything in life, all of our human disconnection stems from this rebellion. Everything that we see in nature is a reflection of this too. We don't, we're not looking at right now a picture of a wrathful God who is bringing down his punishment on the world. We see a world that is sick and is an upheaval because it's got a disconnect from its creator. This is also though where Easter steps in and answers a question that every single person should be asking. Whether you're a Christian or not, this question is a question that you should have asked. And that is this. Is there anything that can be done to change this? Is there anything that could be done to change this reality, the reality that we're currently in? And Easter, for a believer, speaks into that by saying Jesus has the answer. Jesus actually answers this in three ways. One, historically. He answers the question also personally. And then third, he answers the question in a practical, pragmatic way. All of which are rooted in what took place on that Sunday morning in his resurrection. But before we go there, let's go ahead and just take a look at the historical nature of the hope that we have in Christ. First off, just, to, just so that you know that you're in good company, if you feel like your entire world was flipped on its head in a moment, Jesus and all of his disciples experienced something very similar. In one 24-hour period, their whole world, all the disciples' hopes and dreams were dashed. They got dinner together on Thursday night. Jesus is arrested later on that night. He goes through a breakneck set of trials all through the night. By the time he gets into Friday morning, he's already on his way to being tortured and tried and crucified. And by 3 p.m., he's dead. In under 24 hours from that meal, his, his disciples have experienced everything they were looking forward to up-ended and flipped on its back. By the time we get into Sunday, we have a completely different situation. We don't have a group of people who are looking forward to a resurrected Messiah. We have zero Christ followers on Saturday and Sunday until this event. Take a look. In John... He writes this. This is, this is John, the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, or one of the closest disciples that Jesus had in the 12. He writes, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. First off, just let's make a, a clarification here. John is writing this, and he's not inserting his own name. And so he always like puts in just like, just to let you know who this is, the other disciple, the one that Jesus was really close with, that was me. And so he's always inserting himself in there. But listen to what he says here. So she came to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, which was John, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. If you see in that statement, she is not talking about, clearly, the prophecy has come true. You don't have a group of hopeful believers at this time. You have a group of distraught agnostics. I used to believe in God. I I, I really put my faith in this God. I, I I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was God's own son. He was Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. I had all of my faith in him, but my faith died that day. Two days before on Friday, my faith was gone. It was over. 
All throughout the first century, you have messiahs. In, in Jewish history, recent past to that, you had messiahs who raised up, and people were like, this is the one. This is the one that was prophesied. But as soon as they died, the movement stopped. It's really difficult to have a movement with a dead messiah. They kept on going, well, guess I'm going to be waiting for the next one. So when Jesus dies, nobody believes that there's an end to this story that's going to end well for anything that Jesus said. Jesus' teachings became invalidated the moment he took his last breath on the cross. So when Mary Magdalene is running to the guys, she's not communicating good news. She's communicating the fact that there's a grave robbing situation. Let's continue. So... Peter and the other disciple, that's John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. Again, this is bizarre, but John is pointing out, listen, not only am I tighter with Jesus, but I'm also more athletic than Peter. He bent over and looking at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Total Peter move right there, just going straight on in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. This is a remarkable section here where we get a chance to see that Jesus is dealing with these people in a way that was going to be recorded as history. And we know that it's history by the way that they come across interesting details. Number one, they don't come and say the, 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 the tomb was completely empty. And because of that, we believe. The thing that they caused them to have belief was the fact that as opposed to some type of grave robbing situation, you had strips of linen cloth laying there. If you're going to steal a body that's been embalmed and wrapped in linens, you would take the whole body. But this body was radically different. The body of Jesus was gone. The linen stayed there. That interesting little detail lets us know that this is a historical account. On top of that, you have the accounting that these guys, first off, Peter, when, in recorded, when recorded in Luke's gospel, it says that he walks away from this event not instantly believing, but instead confused. He didn't know what to think about the situation. He leaves the empty tomb kind of perplexed. This is so bizarre. What does this mean? And when John believes, he sees the evidence right, right in front of his eyes. He believes, but listen to what it says after that. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John is believing, but he still has questions. Not all of his theological problems are worked out. He just knows, listen, I'm putting my faith in the evidence, the eyewitness evidence of what I'm seeing, not some mythological tale that someone's passing on. I'm going off of what I see with my own eyes. This is why Jesus answering that deep question of how do we deal with all the darkness in this world has to be rooted in what happened on that Sunday, the event of his resurrection. If you look in the Bible, we see that we have reason to believe, not simply because your grandma told you about, your, about the faith or anything else, but that this is rooted historically. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have people that are recording the eyewitness accounts. Matthew was a follower of Jesus. He was someone who recorded the play-by-play -play of what he saw from his vantage point. Mark was not there. He was taking Peter's story and passing on Peter's eyewitness accounts in the book of Mark. The book of Luke was written by a Greek, a doctor, who wanted to give a historical account of Jesus' life so that in spite of all of the, the, the wives' tales and in spite of all of the, the mythological 
epic tales were being told of Jesus that we would have an actual accounting of firsthand eyewitnesses so that future generations would not only hear about it, but they could put their faith in it because of the eyewitness accounts. John also is giving his first eyewitness account. When we jump over to the rest of the New Testament, we have letters from Peter, who again is referencing everything that he has back to what he saw on that day, the resurrected Jesus. James is Jesus' brother. And so whenever we have anything about James, you have to realize he didn't believe right away. He came to the game late. All growing up, all he knew about Jesus was that his parents thought he was super special. And no matter what they tried to tell him, James didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Until the event. Once that event happened, it turned his skeptical, non-believing brother to a believer. I've heard it said before, but this is, it's, it's incredibly important to think about. This is Jesus's brother, James. What would your brother, if you've got a brother, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he was your Lord and God? For James, it took the resurrection. When we jump on over to Paul, one of the things that's so amazing about Paul is that historians see Paul as a historical figure. He's a historical figure who was a skeptic. He was brilliant. He was a scholar, but he was a skeptic of Jesus. He didn't like Jesus when he was alive. He didn't like the movement of Jesus after he died. But it was the resurrected Christ who communicated with Paul that changed the game for him. And within 20 years, he writes about the resurrection as being the primary thing that all of Christians' faith hung on. The reason that we have a hope hangs on that. We could disagree about a lot of stuff, but everything hangs on the resurrection. The thing that's causing agnostics and atheists who are intelligent scholars to believe that there's something profoundly unreal, amazingly out of this world about the New Testament that makes it also accurate is the fact that you have Paul, a historical person who is a skeptic, not on Team Jesus, becoming on Team Jesus after interacting with the resurrected Christ. He had everything to lose, but he gave it up. Not because he was someone who was, had an emotional experience. Not because his grandma told him a great story. But because he had eyewitness, firsthand accounting. And he recorded it within 20 years of the resurrection. Telling everyone, listen, if you don't believe me, here are the names of people you can go back and check the story with. If you've ever felt that you couldn't believe in Jesus because you're too much of a skeptic. Or, or you feel like you have too many questions. You need to understand that our Faith sits on the shoulders of people who were agnostic, that didn't know if they could believe the truth until they had it firsthand. We are sitting on, not on a fable that's been passed bit by bit, but on firsthand account that have been recorded historically so that we can learn about them today. That is where the answer, the first part of the answer comes. Jesus answers historically. But secondly, Jesus answers not only just historically and academically, but personally. After the, those two disciples took off, Mary, you find Mary back in the garden. Listen what happens. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, which is hilarious, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. You have to understand in this moment, Mary is distraught, and for good reason. Jesus looked at her like a person. She was seen by Jesus. 
Earlier in the Gospels, we have the accounting of Mary's life. She was someone that struggled with tons of demons. Because of that, she was an outcast. People didn't want to be around her. People thought she was out of her mind. People were scared of her. People marginalized her, pushed her off to the sidelines, and didn't see her. She became someone that you just looked away from until Jesus Jesus saw her. Jesus knew her name. And, and, and when he looked at her and he, he not only healed her, he did battle with the stuff inside of her that made her whole. And then he took this outcast and brought her in. It's the picture of what Jesus does. So when she sees the dead Jesus on the cross, all of her identity that was rooted in him is gone. All of her hope for a future where she's still seen and still heard is completely out of the picture. One of the things, as, as I've been looking through Twitter this past week, um, and just looking at people as they're dealing with the reality of being confined and isolated, and, and the mental toll that that starts to take, especially if you're alone, or even if you're in a family, but you feel all alone. And someone wrote this on Twitter. Can't think mu of much that would be more devastating right now. Can't think of much that would be more devastating right now than in this isolation— to feel isolation from God, to feel overlooked, unseen, afraid and utterly alone, like you don't matter or shut out, like you've done too much wrong for him to be there for you now. That, that is exactly what Mary was looking face to face in, in the death of Jesus. Everything that she used to be identified by, the worst version of herself was now her primary identifier again because the person who gave her a better identity, a new identity, a whole healed identity was dead. What could happen to change her heart, to change her mind? What could take place that would shift that reality from despair and darkness to hope and light? Look what happens. In one word, we see Jesus doing just that. Jesus said to her, Mary. The very thing, the very thing that she was called out, that she actually had a name by this person. Jesus calls her out uh, using her name. He says to her, Mary. She turned around toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus deals with this person personally. He calls her by name. And I got to tell you, if you're someone who's a Christian right now, you're like, yep, that's right. That's, that's my story. He's done that for me. But if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you right now, if you're all by yourself in this room, or you're in this room with a bunch of people, even if you're in a room with a bunch of people who think that you're a Christian already, but you know that you're not, you know that your heart is still defined by the darkness. Your life is still defined by your worst version of yourself and the worst decisions you made, not by being rescued from them by Jesus. I got to tell you right now, He's calling you by name too. He's calling you by name too. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, just like Mary who had a past, he's calling you by name. He's not making this academic. He's making this personal. He's making this between him and you. And you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity today to cross over from death to life by the very person who knows your name, who knows your life, and has dreamed of a much greater life for you, one that's defined by the light, not by the darkness. Jesus speaks into our deepest question historically. He speaks into our deepest question personally. But it doesn't end with a prayer where you ask Jesus to forgive your sins, and that's it, and you're going to see him one day in heaven. It has a practical reality. From that moment on, Jesus answers our question, our deepest question, practically. 
He answers it practically. When John was trying to come up with a way to open his book, when, when, when he was being led by the Holy Spirit in the, dropping the words that he did, he, in his poetic way, gives Jesus a nickname of his own. He actually starts to call Jesus, not in the book of John, but in, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that are towards the end of the New Testament. He starts to call Jesus by this nickname of light. Because what, to, to have a story that was defined by death on the cross would have been a sad story. But the end of the story was not a dead Messiah, but a Messiah who died for our sins, who did battle with death and hell the disconnect and separation from God forever. He did battle with that to make a way for us to step into the light. And, and when, when he did that, all of a sudden he starts calling Jesus light. So he opens up his book, the book, the same gospel that we've been reading the, the resurrection account from. He starts the book this way. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That, that, that nickname for Jesus is being the light, the light of life. It, it means two things. And if you look through John's, all of John's writings, he kind of like uses it for two reasons. We have light and dark. It, one of the things is that when, you, when you're defined by darkness, but all of a sudden the light comes in, it's a game changer for your whole life. You are no longer confined by sin. You know, you're no longer defined by that, and death is no longer in your trajectory. One day you're going to take your last breath, and that will be the last breath on this planet, in this life. But when Jesus returns, and all of a sudden all things are made new, your first breath of life, seeing him, will start the rest of eternity. Death is no longer something that pins you down. It's no longer something that has a sting that should keep you mourning forever. In fact, it's just a passing by. And not only that, but if death is taken care of, then, then not only is this light a picture of something that infiltrates the darkness of our heart and our deepest fears and our deepest doubts, but it starts to do something. It's like no matter how dark life can get, and life gets dark, some of you are walking through some of the most difficult, darkest moments of your whole life. You have the hope, if Jesus is your rescuer, that it will never be as dark as it possibly could because you have the light inside guiding you through and you know it. No matter how dark life gets, you are like a lantern in that darkness. If, light, if life around you is wonderfully bright and everything's great, awesome. You're still living with that light. But as soon as the lights go dark, you are still illuminated. And not only that, you're illuminating the world around you. People are actually benefited just by hanging out with you because the fact that you are illuminating out of your heart, the life of Christ and the light of Christ, the hope that you have that death is not the end of the story for you. Nothing in this life, the death of relationship, the death of an economy, the death, death of your future plans, the death of anything can possibly be something that's going to tear you limb from limb. No, not even death itself. That's the first reality, the impact of Jesus in your life. Because he not only died on the cross, he rose again. He's the light of life. But the second reason that John uses that Nickname for Jesus is because he's talking about a choice. A choice that you have. A choice that if you've never made this choice, you have that choice today. Light is contrasted with dark. And John brings us to a crossroads. And he either says we can either go the way of Jesus by accepting the light and the life of Jesus. His life where he took on our death and our darkness upon himself on that cross and rose again to life, bringing light to this world. If we put our trust in him, if we ask him to forgive our sins, 
then we could be rescued. Or are we going to be defined by ourselves? It is what it is. Life's ups and downs, mostly dark. It is what it is. He gives you a choice, choosing the path of darkness or the path of light. And I want to challenge you right now, right where you're at, right in your home, right when you're watching this, to make this decision today. In just a moment, we're going to hear the real-life stories of some NBCers who've stepped into the hope that Jesus has offered in receiving the light of, resurre- of his resurrection. That, that real event that happened historically, happened for you personally, and has a practical implications from the moment you receive him on. That you, while you're listening to their real stories of how they've done this, with your eyes open, you could say, God, I am sorry My life has been defined by my worst decisions. I have been identified with the worst version of myself. And I repent. I give it up. I'm tired. I'm done with this. Instead, I want to ask you for forgiveness for what you did, paying for my sins on that cross and rising from the grave that I could know that even death not only couldn't hold you, it can't hold me. And that my life starts now. As you're listening to their stories, with your eyes wide open, with your eyes shut, tell him. Tell him that you're asking him, that you're entrusting him with your sin, with your life, with your future. And you will cross over from death to life in a moment. Do that as you listen, in, as you listen to each one of these stories right now.